If you're with us in the nation's capital, today is the last day you'll be able to pick up COVID-19 tests at public libraries and senior centers. As COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations remain low in the district, DC Health is ending these at-home testing programs on February 28th. All eight wards will maintain their in-person testing sites. This is Pulse Check. I'm Katherine Ellen Foley. The FDA's Center for Tobacco Products has issued its first civil monetary penalties to four e-cigarette manufacturers for selling products the agency hadn't authorized. So far, the FDA has only authorized 23 e-cigarette products. The makers convinced the agency that their products were appropriate for the protection of public health, but FDA has rejected millions more. The four companies hit with fines are Vape Escape, Great American Vapes, The Vapor Corner, and 13 Vapor. And looking ahead this week, the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic is holding a roundtable about COVID-19 policy decisions on Tuesday at 2 p.m. Subcommittee Chair Brad Wenstrup, a Republican from Ohio, will question physicians from Stanford, Harvard, and Johns Hopkins on the federal response to the pandemic to see what can be learned for future emergencies. And some researchers are issuing the wake-up call that poor or inadequate sleep is a major player in public health. Politico's Aaron Shoemaker has the story. Thanks so much for having me. Can you walk me through some of the sleep disparities you heard at this recent Harvard panel? So two of the big ones that we heard about were a gap in sleep between Black Americans and white Americans and a gap in sleep in terms of socioeconomic status. So it, it appears that they're is a link between worse sleep, whether that means shorter sleep or interrupted sleep, and poverty. There's some kind of association there. And when we're talking about worse sleep, what are the cutoffs? Like, how, how much sleep are we, are we talking about? Yeah, so the numbers that I tend to hear over and over again from researchers and scientists are about seven or eight hours a night. In addition to wanting to get that duration of sleep, you also want to be getting regular sleep at kind of the same hours every night. So if you're going to bed, you know, whatever, I go to bed around midnight and like wake up around seven, like I'm going to want to be doing that every night. doesn't matter if it's a weekend or a holiday, like consistency is key duration is key. Good sleep quality is key. They did stress that it's cool to nap. At least one of the researchers uh, was very pro-nap, but that's sort of like a stopgap measure. Like you shouldn't be getting five hours of sleep and then trying to make it up with naps. Like that's not really best practice there. I personally feel really bad whenever I can't get enough sleep for whatever reason, but it seems like, you know, every now and then that's going to be beyond our control. And it seems like that would happen to everybody. So I'm wondering, like, why are researchers caring so much about sleep disparities? Yeah, I mean, I think you're kind of hitting on a couple things. One thing is they care so much because it's a critically important part of health. It's linked to nearly every aspect of health. It's linked to mortality. It's linked to uh, cardiovascular health, dementia, brain health, kids' performance in school, adult performance at work. I mean, like, the list could go on and on and on. It's like the consequences are actually pretty critical to your overall well-being. Mental health, Mm. you know, it's like it's every single aspect. That said, uh, one of the points of this panel was that it's not something you can like totally necessarily tackle as an individual. Uh, You might work the night shift. You might like have obligations, personal or professional, that don't allow you to get great sleep at the same time every single night forever. Like that just might not be 
realistic, especially at a population level. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of also talking about like zooming out a little bit beyond like shaming people for not getting enough sleep and talking about at a societal level, like what kinds of things, um, yeah, might be possible fixes or just like what you can even do if you're maybe not living that easy to get the eight hours every night lifestyle. So I'm wondering then, like, are there researchers who are studying ways that, you know, improved sleep could improve population-wide health? And is there even a good way to, to do that? I mean, I'm sure there are. Uh, it wasn't the focus of the four researchers on this panel. I, I mean, there are. The nice thing about sleep, right, is that unlike a lot of other areas of health, like the recommendations you hear for getting better sleep besides stuff like changing your job, which is quite hard to do um, if you have the mm -hmm. night shift or whatever, or, you know, having your kids grow up uh, and stop being so taxing. The things that they tell us over and over again tend to be like free things and things that are not uh, super high bar to entry to at least try to incorporate into your life. So it's a lot of classic sleep hygiene stuff, uh, you know, try to make sure that you're have a space that's cool enough and dark enough that you can, you know, get to bed, uh, get to sleep easily, like the cool, dark sleep space, trying to make sure that you're putting your phone away an hour before bed and avoiding that mm -hmm. like bedtime screen time. You know, a bath before bed could be for a lot of people. They compared it to the way that little kids or like toddlers have a sleep regimen and like adults should really have them too. I want to go back to something that you said at the beginning, which is that, you know, researchers were highlighting these disparities among different groups of people, different racial groups, and the kind of sleep that they get on a regular basis. And so I'm wondering, like, a lot of what you're saying about sleep hygiene is stuff I think we've all heard before. And I'm wondering if researchers had any insight as to what might be going on between different groups, because I would assume, you know, everybody loves to get eight hours or however much is adequate for you. Yeah, I mean, the thing that they drove home um, is that this is not a genetic difference between races. Like, that's not the thing. Right. This has a lot to do with the social determinants of health. And like a term that came up during the panel was social determinants of sleep. So the non-medical factors that might influence your health, whether that's mm -hmm. education or socioeconomic status or even your zip code is a really big one. So, you know, if we look at different zip codes like... There may be zip codes um, that have a higher proportion of Black residents where there's more light pollution, like some aspect of just like being in that zip code that may impact sleep in some way. Like if you are, you know, uh, hearing loud noises outside, there may be noise pollution. If you're hearing loud noises outside of your window, like all the time, that, you know, could certainly have an impact on sleep. There's just all these social factors that could mean on average people in that neighborhood are not sleeping as well as people in other zip codes. It sounds like researchers were getting at this really important idea that I've heard um, other folks talk about, which is just sort of like the ways that systemic racism will could impact health and sleep disparities is one of the ways that that shows up. Do you think that's, does that sound about right for what you're hearing too? Yeah, I think there's certainly at least, I mean, at least one researcher, I think that's pretty squarely in her uh, area of expertise. And yeah, that certainly fits with the social determinants of health. Like that's something that's sort of woven through all of those, right? Like, what are the reasons that there are disparities in some of these uh, zip codes? Um, like, is it redlining? Like, you know, why, like, why are these disparities coming to, like, mm -hmm. uh, how did they come into being? And it's usually not by accident, right? Right. Is there anything else you learned that was super surprising at this panel? 
Yeah, there was one. Yes, scientists hate the Sunshine Protection Act. Uh, that was one surprising thing that I learned. And that, uh, as we know, is the uh, proposed legislation that would make uh, daylight savings time permanent. So there would be no time change twice a year. Scientists, it turns out, are not into that at all. They say that would be like uh, forcing us all to constantly have jet lag, like we'd be operating under hours that our body's not meant to live under. So, you know, maybe staying up later because the clock says we'd be staying up later, but then still having to wake up early for our jobs. Like they were, at least one scientist was very passionate about her dislike of this proposed rule. I agree with scientists. I like having daylight savings time. Maybe this is an unpopular opinion, but uh, I I really enjoy having more sunlight in the morning. I'm with you. I like to mix it up. Like, I think it's kind of exciting to change the clocks twice a year. Thank you, Erin. This was a super insightful conversation. Thanks so much for having me. And that's our show. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Annie Reese is our producer. Raghu Manabalan is our editor. Our healthcare team editors are Eli Reyes, Dan Goldberg, Barbara Van Tyne, Beth Belton, and Sean Zeller. Jenny Ament is the executive producer of audio at Politico. I'm Catherine Ellen Foley. Subscribe and follow Pulse Check for a new episode every day. And subscribe to our newsletters where you can read this reporting. Pulse, Future Pulse, and Prescription Pulse. Thanks for listening. 